Good evening, church family. Good to see you. Hope you had a great afternoon. Glad we can uh, be back here together tonight. We'll be in Daniel chapter 6 tonight as we continue our walk through the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you don't, there's a black book on the back of the pew in front of you. That's uh, one of our copies of the Bible there. And uh, you can turn on that page 743. They'll find Daniel chapter 6 on page 743. Uh, Daniel chapter 6 is the last part of the easy part of Daniel. Uh, it's the last part of the narrative. It's the last part of the story of what's going on in the life of Daniel. Uh, next week, we may cover a little bit of chapter 7, or we may just kind of take a break and say, okay, let's talk about the, the formation and the way in which the book of Daniel is organized. I'll give you a little bit of a sneak peek. Uh, not everyone will understand this, but people of a certain age will. Uh, certainly recently, uh, in uh, some superhero movies, there's been uh, this theme that you watch the whole movie, uh, and then you think everything's over, and then they roll the credits, and then about halfway through the credits, and sometimes at the very end of the credits, they have a mid-credits or a post-credits scene. And it usually involves someone in the movie that you've just watched, some superhero, maybe uh, Captain America or Iron Man or something like that. Or it may involve a totally different person who's not in the movie at all, and what it's giving you is a short snippet of a sneak peek of what's coming down the line in future movies. In some ways, I think Daniel chapters 7 through 12 is kind of like a post-credit scene. We read and we hear the story of Daniel in Daniel chapters 1 through 6, and then the rest of it, he's going back. He's actually going to go back and talk about some visions that he's had, three or four different visions that he's had in in a time frame that is actually passed in the narrative that he's already talked about. He's going to go back to the first year of uh, Belshazzar, and then the third year of Belshazzar. Then he'll go to Darius, then he'll go to Cyrus, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, But he's going kind of all over the place, and we're going to learn that, we'll talk about that, in the coming weeks. Again, this is the last part of the easiest part of the book of Daniel. You know Daniel chapter 6, even if you don't know what it talks about. It's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. So you've heard that story a lot, and we'll talk about that uh, as we go through and learn some uh, important application to us, and certainly the encouragement uh, from God's protection able to deliver us, as we just sang. Uh, Daniel chapter 6, let's start uh, in verse 1. It seemed good to Darius. All right, let's stop right there. That was quick. Uh, remember we talked about last week at the very end of Daniel chapter 5 that we were saving this story of who is Darius, who is Cyrus, and we were going to talk about that uh, today. Um, so hi- historical records, both secular and biblical, uh, including Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Isaiah, tell us that it's going to be King Cyrus who comes and takes over uh, the Babylonian Empire and is going to usher in the, the Medes and the Persians. And that, that empire uh, that was actually talked about and, and dreamed about by King Nebuchadnezzar all the way back in chapter 2, where we had the big statue where the head of, I, or the head of gold and then the, uh, the, as they progressed through three or four different kingdoms. And the Medes or per- Persians are the next one. Babylon was the, the head of gold and the next one is going to be the Medes and Persians and Cyrus, according to uh, historical records outside the Bible, according to prophecy inside the Bible, and historical records inside the Bible, Cyrus is supposed to be the king who takes over the kingdom uh, from the Babylonians. But then we have maybe some confusion at least, perhaps a problem depending on who you are, in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 31, after Belshazzar, excuse me, um, yeah, Belshazzar the king is killed. Uh, it says in verse 31, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So he seemed to have not only a, uh, 
we seem to have a, a conflict between what Daniel says, who is supposed to be living during there and in that time and actually be there in Babylon, versus what the Bible says, versus what historians say. And we want to talk about that very briefly tonight. And here's maybe the most important thing. You'll remember that last week, I believe, we talked about King Belshazzar, right? Uh, we talked about King Belshazzar and how for uh, hundreds of years, for hundreds of years, there was absolutely no historical proof outside the Bible that he was a real person. There was absolutely none. And it, it got to the point where in the 1800s, uh, historians would claim that Belshazzar was not a real person. He was a fictional character made up by the writer of Daniel. Okay, uh, And th- there was absolutely no proof outside the Bible that this guy ever existed. But then, ironically, providentially, however you want to look at it, just a short time later, in comparison to the 1,800 years or so or longer, really thousands of years, that we had no evidence for Belshazzar, shortly thereafter, within the next couple of decades, we had multiple, a considerable amount, 35 or so records as uh, archaeology and digging and uh, study found that Belshazzar was a real person, okay? So think about this. Think about Christians, believers of the Bible, for those thousands of years where there was absolutely no historical evidence that Belshazzar was a real person. How did they teach Daniel chapter 5? Well, they taught Daniel chapter 5 that Belshazzar was a real person, right? Because we believe the Bible is God's word. We believe that it doesn't have any errors. We believe that it's true. We talked about that this morning. Sanctified in truth, your word is truth. So they must have thought, must have taught that, hey, we, we, there is no historical evidence. There is no proof outside the Bible. But I believe the Bible is God's word. And because I believe the Bible is God's word, I believe that Belshazzar was a real person. That's how they had to teach it. Well, the fact is, in some ways, the difference between Darius and Cyrus is similar to that right now. Okay? Uh, historically, there are some kings of the Medes and Persians named Darius. But the timeline, the biblical timeline, the historical timeline, this Darius cannot be those Dariuses. It doesn't match up, okay? Cyrus is the one who's supposed to take over, and Cyrus is historically the one who takes over. So how, how, do, we, how do we solve this? What are the possibilities? Well, first of all, I believe God is God. I believe God is in control. That's what the whole book of Daniel is about, right? From Daniel chapter 1 to Daniel chapter 6, there's instance after instance after instance where it looks like God is not in control, and God exerts his power and says, hey, remember, I'm in control. So I still believe that today. God's in control. And so we, we have to look at it and consider, okay, well, how can we explain this? Are there any possibilities? No, no definite, absolute proof. We have not found a historical record that explains Darius and Cyrus and who takes over. And we haven't found that exactly yet. So what, what possibilities are there? Is this just absolutely disproven? And does that disprove the Bible? And do we have a really big problem of uh, a crisis of faith if that's the case? If that's the case, then yeah, we do. But are there any possible rational explanations that that might explain this i believe there are here at least two there are more uh, but here are at least uh two Uh, first of all uh, darius and cyrus are the same person Uh, darius and cyrus cyrus the great specifically who historical records and biblical records tell us would take over the the kingdom from babylon uh potentially they're the same person okay well well, how is that uh it's possible that darius is a throne name kind of like Caesar would be during the time of the Romans, kind of like Pharaoh would have been during the time of the Egyptians, that Darius would have been a throne name. Uh, And that seems to be a possibility and perhaps even uh, a realistic, uh, rational possibility. Um, 
we, we, again, like I said, historical records, biblical records say that Cyrus will take over the kingdom of Babylon. Well, let's read again uh, chapter 5 and verse 31. It says, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age 62. Well, is there any, any proof, any evidence that this might be the case? Well, again, the, those historical records which would become, we have more and more, we have more of the historical records of the Babylonians and of the Medes and Persians, some of the earliest histories that we have come from, from those groups of people. And it seems as if that Dari, or Cyrus, when he took over the kingdom, he would have been about this age. He would have been about uh, 62 years old, as it claims that this Darius is. So there's a, there's a correlation there uh, that perhaps his, his age uh, is something that we can understand. Now let's look at the end of chapter 6 uh, and look for a little bit more proof, okay? So when we read this, uh, it doesn't sound like this would be proof that Darius and Cyrus are the same person. And again, let me reiterate, I am telling you two possibilities. I cannot absolutely confirm either one of these, okay? But these are possibilities that make it uh, where the Bible doesn't necessarily contradict itself or contradict history, and I don't believe that it will. But in Daniel chapter 6, verse 28, it says, So this Daniel, okay, so this is after the story of the lion's den. Daniel survives, spoiler alert, okay? Uh, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the kingdom of Darius and in the kingdom of Cyrus, the Persian. Well, at first glance, that, so you say, Andy, that doesn't really help any, does it? That doesn't really help support this idea that Darius and Cyrus are the same person. It seems to indicate that they're two different people, that he enjoyed success during the kingdom of Darius and Cyrus, okay? Uh, this, this, uh, this formation of words, this phrase, this, this language here that's used in this sentence is actually used in, in other places, and it actually helps us to perhaps give a little bit more proof to this idea that Darius and Cyrus could be the same person. Turn with me, if you will, or you can just uh, listen along, if you'd like, uh, to these couple passages. First Samuel uh, chapter 17 and verse 40. First Samuel 17 and verse 40. This is a familiar story uh, that you know a lot about. It's, it's uh, David and Goliath. First uh, Samuel chapter 17 and verse 40. Listen to what it says here. Uh, then he, that is David, took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling, which is in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Okay, so not talking about a person, but talking about a thing, the same thing, and describing it in two ways. Did you catch it? He took his stick, he gathered some stones, he put them in his shepherd's bag, even in his pouch. His shepherd's bag and his pouch are the same thing. He's just describing it in two different ways. Okay, you get that? Now, to think about it with a, with a person, we can turn over to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 26. 1 Chronicles 5 and verse 26. And what I'm going to suggest to you is a possibility of what's happening at the end of Daniel 6 absolutely happens in 1 Chronicles 5 verse 26. It says there, uh, so the God of Israel stirred up the spirit, and here are some names that I will butcher again as I usually do, stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria. Okay, so who's the king of Assyria? Pul, P-U-L. Okay, he's the king of Assyria. And then it says, even the spirit of Tilgath, Pilneser, king of Assyria. So God stirs up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, even Tilgath, king of Assyria. What's he saying? Well, the king apparently had two names that he went by. So we have an, an example in biblical history of this same person being referenced by two different names. Now, that's not uncommon in the book of Daniel, is it? What's Daniel's name in Babylon? Belteshazzar. 
It's even used within the next couple of, of chapters interchangeably. This Daniel, Belteshazzar. Remember last, remember last, uh, last, uh, last chapter, uh, last week, when we talked about how the, the king's mother came and said, hey, there's a, there's a guy who can help you understand what this, this writing on the wall is. And he, she interchangeably uses Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar. So it happens even within the book of Daniel that we're talking about. So the same, again, in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 28, it is possible with the words that are used there in Hebrew, it is possible for instead of it saying, so this Daniel enjoyed success in the kingdom of Darius and in the kingdom of Cyrus the Persian, it's possible that it could be read this way. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the kingdom of Darius, that is, in the kingdom of Cyrus the Persian. It's possible. I can't absolutely tell you that that's right i can tell you absolutely that there was a time for thousands of years that people didn't think belshazzar was a real king in babylon but then there became proof that there was a king named belshazzar who ruled during the time that the bible says i can't point to that today and to tell you that that's exactly what it is but there is a possibility that darius and cyrus are the same person so that's number one secondly and much shorter uh there's another guy another option uh that a man named uh gubaru that's how I'm going to say it, probably not the right way. Uh, Gubaru was a man who ruled in Babylon uh, in or about this time. He was uh, Cyrus's governor over the land west of the Euphrates. He is a historical figure. But again, you would say, okay, well, well Gubaru is not the same name as Darius, is it? Uh, but perhaps, again, Darius was a throne name, a name that the ruler of um, Babylon would have been called, the, the, a name that they gave to him. Again, not super unsimilar to the idea that we had in Daniel chapter 5. Remember who, who is called king in Daniel chapter 5? Belshazzar. Well, who's really king in Daniel chapter 5? His father who rules in a different place, right? And we looked at and understood the, the historical accuracy of that, that for a long time was doubted, that the same thing is, is possible here. I, I'm going to choose to believe God, even if there hasn't been evidence found that absolutely proves what God's word says yet. I would pray, and I would encourage you to pray, hey, God, give us some proof. God, show us that these things are true. Uh, shut the mouths of biblical detractors. Uh, he has done it in the past, and perhaps we could pray the same thing today. So uh, that's the, the deeper kind of meta stuff that we'll talk about really quickly. Now let's get into Daniel chapter 6 and learn the lessons from the actual story that happens in Daniel chapter 6. So it seemed good to Darius, whomever he is, the ruler at that time, uh, to set up 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, okay? A satrap is a, uh, specifically, he's a protector of the empire. Uh, this empire, the Medes and the Persians, it stretched from India to Ethiopia, okay? So that's from the Asian continent, Asia Minor, all the way to Africa. This is even bigger than the Babylonian empire, okay? It's a tr- tremendous empire. He sets up 120 satraps. Basically, we might, we might think of them as, as governors. Verse 2, and over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one that these satraps might uh, be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. So the job of the satraps was basically to collect taxes and to stop revolts, okay? Practically, that was their job. And these three commissioners will be the ones who make sure those guys are doing their job. Uh, Verse three, then this Daniel began to distinguish himself among the commissioners and the satraps because an extraordinary spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. Okay, Daniel, time and time again, proves himself uh, to not only... 
be able to interpret dreams, but he's an extremely smart guy. Remember what the, the queen said about him in chapter five? He's able to, to solve puzzles and he's got great ideas. It's very similar to how Joseph rose to power over and over again, wherever he was uh, during his time in Egypt. Daniel is a very capable man. He's blessed by God and he's able to uh, rise to power over and over again. Uh, and, and it says so much so that the king is about to make him like Joseph was in Egypt, the second in command of all the kingdom, only behind uh, the king himself. Um, Verse four, then the commissioners and satraps began uh, seeking to find grounds of accusation against Daniel. Okay, they don't like this Daniel guy uh, is in charge. Why don't they like it? Well, at the very least, probably because they're selfish and they wish they were in charge and he's, he's getting in charge instead of them. Maybe it has something to do with his background or his heritage. We're not sure about that. But notice what it says. They're trying to find accusation against Daniel in regard. Okay, so here's where they're looking first. In regard to matters of the kingdom, but they were not able to find any ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. Inasmuch as he was faithful and there was no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So they said, okay, this, this guy, he's got to have some secrets. He's got to have some skeletons in his closet. We've got to find out what it is. And they couldn't find anything. He was not corrupt in any way. He didn't cheat the system. He didn't, you know, take a little bit extra off the top for himself. He, he was uh, totally uh, corrupt free. Uh, verse 5, then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Evan and I were talking about this uh, this this week in preparation for the the lesson or maybe just in in passing and i've often heard and even been to to different events where the even the theme is dare to be a daniel you guys heard something like that before dare to be a daniel and oftentimes we might think about well you know that's daniel and his friends you know you often talk about when you have a theme like that you talk about shadrach meshach and abednego not bowing down being thrown into the furnace you talk about daniel here you know uh, not stopping praying but even being thrown into the lion's den and that those are great things but i would say let's dare to be a daniel like this that the only thing that someone can find wrong with us is something about our god that's the kind of daniel i want to be that's the kind of faith that I want to have. Yes, if I have to go to the lion's den, if I have to go to the fire furnace, that's fine. But the kind of faith I want to have is that people, and the kind of life I want to live, is such a life that the only thing people can find wrong with me is the, my faith and my following of God. And that's their plan. So here, here's what they come up with. These, um, these other leaders, uh, they all talk. The, the other commissioners, the two other commissioners, and some of the, uh, the satraps, they come up with a plan. And they say, okay, let's, let's go to the king. And they do. They go to the king and they say, man, king, you, you're, you're awesome. And we think you're so awesome that you should make a law that no one should pray to anybody except for you for 30 days. And the king, maybe liking you know, his ego being stroked a little bit, says, yeah, I am pretty awesome. Uh, and he, he writes the law. He writes the law. And in essence, what it is is that no one was supposed to pray to anybody else ex- during, except for him during those 30 days. Now, uh, if, you, if you look at it a little bit, that, that seems pretty arrogant, doesn't it? And it is kind of arrogant, okay? I don't think that there, there's definitely some, some arrogance there. Uh, but historically, we, we think about, you know, you think about uh, Caesar uh, in the Roman Empire. He considered himself to be a god. You think about the, the leaders of the, the Babylonian empires. They generally considered themselves to have some sort of deity. It was not common, not as common at least, for the Medes and Persian leaders to consider themselves to be deity. So why would, why would this king say you need to pray to me if he doesn't think that he's a god? Well, maybe he does, and maybe that's why he doesn't. Another option is, is that instead of this idea of praying to me, he, he maybe in his mind or maybe in the way they present it that we don't have recorded in Scripture is say, hey, king, 
No one needs to ask anybody else for help or no one needs to ask anybody else for guidance except for you, king, because you are the, the best king there is. And, and you could almost, and, and some have even suggested that this is the best way you could rationalize why would he do this. Uh, this king is constantly seemingly conquering other nations and conquering other peoples. And he wants to be a good king and he wants to understand his people. So if people let him know, hey, this is what we need, they make petition of him they pray to him, then he would know what the people need. So at the very best situation, you could perhaps say that. That may or may not be exactly what happens here. But the law is, no, is made. And look at verse number 10. Now when Daniel knew that the written document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been previously doing. So there's a lot of things that we can think about this. Uh, He he knows that the, the document, the law is signed. What do you think he's praying about? He's probably praying about the law and the document that had been signed. God, please bring about a way where this law can be overturned, where this can be changed. Because he's thinking not only about himself, he's thinking about the other Jews who know not to pray to anybody else. So he's probably praying at least in part uh, about this. We see that this is a regular and disciplined exercise that Daniel has been doing and continues to do. Daniel, at this point in his life, he's in his 80s. All right? So he's been doing this for a long time. Praying three times a day, facing Jerusalem, and focusing on his God. Now, the question or the the temptation would be for us, if we were in a similar situation, and maybe even for Daniel, would be to rationalize, well, couldn't he just take a break? Couldn't he have just, you know, stopped praying that often, uh, that many times a day, closed his windows when he prayed? Couldn't he have done that sort of thing? Uh, Could he have uh, maybe gone, like Jesus says, and into an inner room, you know, pray in your closet? Rather than praying on your rooftop with your windows wide open, couldn't he have done something like that? You know, the the idea here is that I think both of those would have been wrong. For Daniel. Maybe not for you and maybe not for your given situation, but for Daniel, both of those things. To to have taken a break, to have stopped doing what he had had been doing, praying to God three times a day, that would have been wrong. To to have even gone into an inner room and, and shut the windows for Daniel, that might have been wrong because it would have been a compromise. And it would have been something that uh, he has set this standard for himself. He has set this standard for those who looked at him. How in the world did they know that they could make this law and catch Daniel? Because they knew this was the dedication he had to his God. And if he backed off of that dedication, then he's living in fear, without faith. And he's turning away from God more than he's turning towards God's. I would say that because of this regular disciplined exercise that he's been doing for decades upon decades, it probably would not only would have been not the best thing for him to do, it might have even, we could say, the wrong thing for him to do. So he's caught. He's praying. They watch him. They catch him. uh, And he's caught. And they go to the king and say, hey, king, didn't you make this law? Didn't you say that no one was supposed to pray to to anybody but you for 30 days? This Daniel pays no attention to you, it says in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Then as soon as the king heard this word, as soon as the king hears that Daniel is the one who has broken this law that he made, it says the king, he was greatly distressed. 
within himself and set his mind on saving Daniel. Even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to deliver him. Okay, now we've talked about Daniel's relationship with different kings. And Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar seem to have formed over the years a very close bond. Uh, Daniel and Belshazzar, this, this young kid who is ruling in place of his father, in Daniel chapter 5, they seem to have almost no relationship. And then here in Daniel chapter 6, Darius, as soon as he realizes that he's caught, or he's, he's made this decision and Daniel's been caught up in it, he is concerned. And he's not just, he's not just concerned because Daniel is a, is a good leader. It seems to be something personal. Notice again when it says he's greatly distressed within himself, his, and he sets his mind on saving Daniel. It even says that even until sunset, he exerts himself to deliver him. From whatever time he found this out, from morning or noon or afternoon until evening, he kept trying to, well, let's do this, or hey, can I do this, or hey, trying to come up with all kinds of different ideas to save Daniel from the fate that was coming to him. Because again, the fate, which we didn't talk about, if you pray to anybody other than the king in those 30-day period, what was going to happen? You'd be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel knew that not only did he know I'm not supposed to pray to anybody else, he knew the punishment ahead of time too, and he was still making sure that he did the right thing. And then they remind him in verse 15, and this is interesting because sometimes we think about the laws of the ancient world. Uh, the, uh, a law that the king signed, not even the king could change that law. It's a pretty good idea most of the time you would think. The, the, the king, even though he's powerful, can't, uh, he's not above the law is basically the idea that happens here. But because of that, uh, Daniel's not getting out of this punishment. We look at verse 16. Uh, then the king said the, said the word, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lions. Then the king answered and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, uh, will himself save you. Okay, so again, this King Darius, he, he knows the dedication that Daniel has to his God, and he trusts that Daniel's God is going to deliver him. Uh, but I don't want to gloss over the idea um, of Daniel and the lions then. Okay, it's, we think about vacation Bible school. We think about coloring sheets for our kids. And Daniel and the lion's den is almost comical, okay? Um, last night, we had, uh, the Sims had a, uh, um, a trunk that was decorated like Jurassic Park. Most of you have probably seen, well, maybe not all of you. I have seen Jurassic Park. Maybe you have too. Uh, the terrifying idea that when those, those dinosaurs are chasing people, right? Yeah, I get it. It's pretend. But it would be just as terrifying to be thrown into a lion's den. That was the whole purpose, right? Being thrown into a fiery furnace, being crucified, being thrown into a lion's den. These were supposed to be terrible things. And we need to be careful that we don't gloss over the idea, oh yeah, Daniel went to the lion's den. No, Daniel went to the lion's den. There were, there were hungry lions down there, and the expectation was Daniel was going to be devoured. But God is with him, and God helps him. But don't gloss over that fact. It says in verse 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. Uh, verse 18, uh, notice what happens again, the, talking about the relationship that Daniel has formed with King Darius. The king went off to his palace after the, the, the stone is rolled over and he spent the night fasting and no entertainment was brought before him and his sleep fr fled from him. He arose early at the dawn, at the daybreak and hurriedly went to the lions. And again, listen to what he does here. If anybody could have distracted himself from this difficult situation, it was the king. He could have called in whatever form of entertainment he wanted to. He could have distracted his mind, his body, whatever he wanted to do, but he didn't. It says instead that he fasted, which probably means he's praying to some sort of God, uh, whether it's the God of Daniel or some other God, but he, he's fasting, he's thinking about it, and as soon as the, the sun rises, he hurriedly, he runs to the lion's den to see what has happened. 
It says, uh, uh, again, in verse 20, when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king answered and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to save you from the lion's den? I want to pause there. The tension between the question and the answer. The tension between the king's question. Hey, Daniel, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you in the moments? Before Daniel answers, the tension of those moments, that's where Satan thrives. Satan thrives in the moments between I trust that God can, but I don't know if God will. That's where Satan thrives. In your life, that's where Satan thrives. The tension between I trust that God can help me in this situation, but I don't know if God will. That's where doubts arise. That's where rebellion against against God is stirred. Let me encourage you to instead of this, this tension and this doubt, to fill that space with the knowledge that God will do what is best for us. God will do what brings him glory, and that is what is best for us. Okay, Daniel chapter 3, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the, in the fiery furnace. And Daniel chapter 6 with uh, Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, these, these chapters are not written to teach us or to show us or to make us think that God will always deliver us. Did you hear me? Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6 are not written to teach you that God will always deliver us from every trial. But instead that he is present in that trial, and that nothing can separate us from his love. Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of God? I'm convinced neither height nor death nor all of those things, that long list that he has in Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It can't be lost on us again that we already talked about in Daniel chapter 3 for Hananiah, Misha, and Azariah, Daniel, and Daniel chapter 6, that these men were willing to suffer death rather than deny their allegiance to and reliance upon God. They did not know. They did not know. When Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, he did not know that God would send an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. But he wasn't going to deny his God, even if it cost him his life. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they did not know. As a matter of fact, there was a lot of evidence that they were about to die. You remember what happens to the guards who throws them in, right? They seemingly burst into flames because the the heat is so hot. And those guys die. And these guys are thrown in. They did not know in that moment that God would provide an angel to help them and that they wouldn't be harmed at all. In your life, you do not know whether or not God will deliver you from the trial that you face. And if it is going to be what brings God the most glory, and if it's going to be what's truly best for you, there may be times when God does not deliver you from a trial. We can read many other stories in the Bible of God's people suffering, for their faith. We need not be surprised if that happens to us as well. God did not write and did not put these stories in the Bible to help us to understand or to think that God will always deliver us. We know that God does, of course, deliver him. Uh, The king makes uh, a great proclamation uh, that no one is to um, fear or to, or you are to fear actually, and be in dread of the God of Daniel. Also know in verse 24 that those same people, uh, just proving further the, the, uh, the protection of God, what happens to the people who accuse Daniel? Daniel is pulled up out of the lion's den. Those same people are there hoping to see what? Lions that aren't hungry anymore. 
Okay? Daniel dead. That's what they want to see so one of them can be the most powerful guy. What happens to them is that the king takes, as happened often in the ancient Near East, and even was a part of the Jewish law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Daniel's pulled up out of it, and they and their entire families are thrown into it. And it tells us in Daniel that before they even touch the ground, they're devoured. Those lions were hungry. There's no doubt about it. But God had closed the, the mouth of those lions. Again, in verse 26, uh, King Darius says, I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and to be in dread before the God of Daniel. Like Nebuchadnezzar before him in Babylon, now King Darius of the Medes and the Persians, he proclaims and praises the God of Daniel, certainly because God delivered Daniel, but maybe even impressed because Daniel was willing to suffer the fate that was before him. So what's the lesson for us? Again, we can think about the historical things, and we'll look further at that in Daniel chapter 7 and, going fo- and following uh, as we th- go on through the next few weeks. Uh, Daniel and the lion's den is not a, a new story for us, uh, but again, the, the point of it is not that the next trial that you face, whether that's a, a physical ailment or a, a confrontation with someone because of your faith, it doesn't always automatically mean Daniel is not teaching us in Daniel 3 and 6 uh, that you're going to automatically be delivered from those trials. What he's teaching us instead is that God is there, he is aware, and he's going to bring about praise for his name, which ultimately is what is best for us. If we die being faithful to God, what happens to us, Christian? We get to go be with God. If we don't die being faithful to God, then we're still on our way to go and being with God. So those are the things that we need to consider. Maybe tonight you are experiencing some sort of trial in your life and you're looking for some way uh, to get out. Maybe you've prayed about it and prayed about it and prayed about it and asked God to help you with it and overcome it. It reminds me of what Paul says about his, uh, his uh, thorn in the flesh, that he prays multiple times for God to, to remove this thorn in the flesh from him, and he doesn't. And what is the thorn in the flesh? We don't know. We don't know exactly what it is, but he's got a struggle. He's got a trial, and he asks God to deliver him from it, and God does not deliver him from it. But he says, my grace is sufficient for you. God is here and he's going to ultimately take care of us. So I, I know it's not easy. I've been there. You've been there at different parts, parts of our life that we have to go through some difficult things. And sometimes the temptation is in that tension between I know that God can do something, but I don't know that God will do anything. And especially sometimes when God doesn't do what we think he should do, the temptation is to doubt God. But don't forget that God is there, that he cares, and that even trials and difficulties and horrific things can't separate us from the love of God. Uh, tonight, if you're going through a difficult time, one of the things that God has given you to help you make it through those times, even if you have to endure them, is your church family. And we're here for you, and we want, we want your help, and we need your help. Uh, so if you need to let, some, let us know about something that you're going through and let us pray for you and let us help you practically through those things, we want to be able to do that. Tonight, if you're caught up in sin and that's the trial that you're facing and you're not a Christian yet, uh, I can't get you out of that, but God has already made a way. Uh, through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, you can have your sins washed away, rise up to walk in newness of life, and you can become a Christian. If you're interested in knowing more about that, we want to talk to you about it tonight. If there's anything we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.